Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. It is my honor and privilege to be joining you live from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank, headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. And we're going to talk about uh, markets and economies today um, with uh, a bunch of heavy hitters. We've got Paul Donovan, we've got Salida Marcelli, we've got Karen Ganesh. And I also want to, before we get into this, uh, I, I want to um, mention that on Thursday, March 30th, our CIO Americas team is going to be hosting a special live stream on the U.S. debt ceiling. And Salita is going to be joined by Tom McLaughlin, our head of fixed income in the Americas, uh, and also uh, Jeb Henserling, who is a executive vice chairman at UBS and also a former congressman and chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. So uh, getting back to our the macro review and our outlook, I wanted to turn to Paul first. And uh, Paul, you know, straight up, how much do we think that policymakers have done here? Have they averted a crisis and can you compare a little bit the current situation to the 2008 scenario that many people are thinking about? Thanks, Mark. Um, interesting question. I think uh, they have averted a crisis. I think there's a limit to how big the crisis was likely to get. This isn't like 2008. So we're not dealing with murky mortgage-backed securities that people don't really understand. You know, we are talking about interest rate risk on treasuries, which is relatively easy to understand and relatively simple to, to calculate. So I don't think we got the same sort of scale of crisis as, as, 20, uh, sorry, as 2008, but I think that regulators, central banks have moved to dampen down the crisis pretty quickly. Now, I think there are some really, really key differences to what we've seen in the past. And this is where we're now going to have to look for regulators to start changing their approach. Because I think, as is so often the case, regulators have been fighting the last war. You know, they've been dealing with, with this crisis as if it were a 2008 crisis. And it, it is actually different. This, I think, is the first banking problem of the Twitter age. And that actually really, really matters. Um, because if we look at, at some of what happened in the States, one of the problems there was concentration risk, that all of the depositors knew each other and you know, were, were able to sort of panic together en masse because it was essentially a, a friendship group or an extended friendship group pulling their money out of some of these banks. Now, actually, that's, that's going back to history. If you go back to the early 1800s, the sort of typical bank run of 220 years ago, that was all coming in a sort of a, a group of small towns where everybody knew each other, everyone banked in the same bank, and somebody would say over a dinner party, oh, I think this bank's looking a bit rubbish, and everyone would pull their money. Well, that's what's happening now, except we're doing it over WhatsApp. Um, and of course, that meant that you have a new form of risk, which we've, we have not had to contemplate for you know, a, a century and a half at least. We also saw a very rapid crisis. And the Bank of England governor, uh, Bailey, today was talking about this, that this was a very, very rapid withdrawal of money. And that's because unlike 2008, if you wanted to get your money bounced, you didn't have to queue up outside the door of the bank, sort of pounding on the glass to get your cash. 
you go online, you press a couple of buttons and that's it, it's gone. So this was a very, very rapid move in terms of the banking situation. So I think what we've had here is the systemic risk really isn't there in the way that it was in 2008. But what regulators have got to adapt to more quickly is new risks, like you know, are all of your depositors friends with one another and, and able to sort of feed off each other's fear in a social media echo chamber, uh, and how quickly things come about. And what I think this really underscores, and this applies to non-banks, so to general companies as well as to banks, is that as we move into this new era of communication, the fourth industrial revolution, it is reputation that becomes exponentially important. And that means getting the right culture in companies is, is extremely important to maintaining the confidence of your consumer base. Very obviously the case for banks, but actually I think this applies to all corporations as we look ahead to the brave new world. All right, Paul. Uh... You know that was a tour de force uh, in m many different levels. But so what I what I heard on that was this is not a 2008 crisis. It is a something different. It is not as severe in terms of uh, systemic risk as 2008. Uh, but it has lots of interesting threads going forward. Number one, highlighting the importance of reputation, culture, and the ability of social media to accelerate concerns uh, in the banking system, but really all across business. Fascinating threads there. But to pull it back for this audience today, what is the impact on the economy, on GDP, risks of recession as a result of this non-2008 crisis or lack of confidence that we've seen come through over the past few weeks? Well, of course, Mark, I mean, it's not as if nothing has happened. You know, clearly, we have had a shift. And particularly in the States, we have seen some deposits moving from the smaller banks and the small regional banks into the larger banks. And this churn in deposits does raise risk. What I think it has done, to cut to the, the conclusion, I don't think it means that we are now going into a more severe downturn, absolutely guaranteed. What I think it means is you know, the base case is still there, but you have to, realistically, you have to increase the risk weighting to the downside case, which is a more severe downturn. So what we are now going to have to focus on is what is going on with bank lending. Because as you get all this deposit churn, the risk here is that a number of banks, particularly the smaller banks, might say, right, we need to prove that we are like Caesar's wife, beyond reproach, You know that we have got bags and bags of cash, everything's fine, we need to go to liquidity. And one of the ways that they would do that is to start cutting back on bank lending, increasing, tightening the, the credit quality standards that they apply to their loans. And the risk with that then is that you get a reduction in credit, particularly to the consumer, who's been very dependent upon credit um, in the last couple of years at least, and then that snowballs because then what would happen is growth would slow down. People would start to worry about their job security, which they've not been doing so far, and then you start to get what we call precautionary savings. You're people saving money because they are concerned they might lose their job tomorrow, and that then really accelerates the downturn. So that would be the risk case 
scenario. Now, I don't think we're going there. We don't really have good quality evidence at the moment. But what evidence we've got is that whilst we may get some tightening of credit standards, we've already been in a tightening scenario. We probably don't get that acceleration that would create the more severe downside scenario. But quite clearly, the risks have risen. Now, what it's important to recognize here is that this is one of those unfortunate occurrences when central banks will have better information than economists will. And I do not like it when central banks know things I don't know. But that's what we've got as we look ahead, because the central banks will be on the phone as regulators to the banking system saying, oi, what are you doing? Are you tightening standards? Are you not? Now, it's too soon for the central banks to have got that information. It's too soon for the banks to have made up their minds about what they're going to do. So frankly, you know, ignore Fed speakers for the next week or so. They're not going to be able to tell us anything really quality information about what's going on. But in two, three weeks time, the signals coming out of central banks are going to be uh, significant, I think, about the extent of credit tightening and whether we stick with this base scenario or whether the risk scenario starts to manifest. As I said, the evidence so far is that we should be sticking with the base scenario, but we have to be realistic. You know, we have had an event. It has changed the facts. It has increased the downside risk somewhat, not too dramatically, but somewhat. All right. Well, you know, in the base scenario, then, when do we see the central banks taking action towards pausing and, and cutting? Because that's on a lot of people's minds. It is. And, and of course, this does remain a little bit up in the air because you know, what is going to go on with the banking system? Uh, what signals do you want to send? You don't want to create disorderly markets. So where are we going with this? I mean, I have to say, you know, if I was running the Federal Reserve, I would have stopped tightening already on fundamental grounds, but I've a British accent, so they won't let me run the Federal Reserve. So you know, we're, we're dealing with what we're dealing with. Um, I think we are very close to the peak of the tightening cycle. I think it is fair to say that for most of the major central banks, the second quarter will mark the peak of the tightening cycle. Um, that means we may get one more hike out of the Fed. I would be surprised if we saw anything more aggressive the ECB perhaps is a little bit more aggressive. Remember, the ECB was a lot later in starting. But even there, I think by the end of the second quarter, we're done. Bank of England, we may already be done even at the Bank of England, though there may be another rate hike in them. So I don't like being vague about this, but I think the central banks themselves don't know for certain what their next move is going to be. But I think most central bankers would now agree that with the combination of a relentless tightening cycle, which has actually been part of the problem. They just haven't stopped to pause and think. That relentless tightening cycle, coupled now with some wobbles in bank lending, that I think is enough to signal that we are pretty close to the peak in rates, but we can't be pinpoint precise just at this point until we get a little bit more information on what's going on on the credit cycle. Okay, so much closer to the peak, and we're going to have to pick up at another time interesting points like why the UK uh, lets people who speak both with a British accent and an American accent do monetary policy, but it's not there's no reciprocity. So with that, uh, we're going to leave the public portion of our program. See you next time. 
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 